I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the early 1980s, the Belgian government plunged into a disturbing institutional and political crisis. Furthermore, developed into a catastrophic socio-economic context. Right in the middle of this instability, a multitude of atrocious and mysterious crimes were deliberately orchestrated by a band of cruel, ruthless and relentless criminals. A cold case that would constantly resurface in the legal news, as well as in the scarred memories of Belgians. It all began with a few ordinary offenses like shoplifting and car theft, but nothing violent or destabilizing that could have alarmed the authorities or even made them suspect the murderous turn that these minor infractions would soon take. The first attack occurred in Dinant on March 13, 1982. It was the end of a beautiful spring day at the foot of the citadel. The afternoon sun's rays illuminated the shores of the Meuse River and gently wiped away the last traces of winter. However, a minor incident would disrupt the tranquility of this calm and peaceful community. At place Victor Collard, a car came to a sudden stop. Two very suspicious strangers stepped out, a tall, slender young man in his twenties with a blonde highlights and an older, stocky man in his fifties with graying hair. As they approached the house of the inventor of the saxophone, the two men did not slow down. At the Baird Armory, a store that specialized in hunting and fishing equipments, the store's owner was not at the cash counter. The thieves quickly broke in and grabbed the closest gun from the display case and ran out. The armory's owner, Joseph Katai, found the crooks running away with a hunting rifle. Immediately, Mr. Katai called the police, who then started an investigation. However, the incident was not considered important enough to warrant serious attention. The gun was designed for duck hunting and the ammunition it used was rare in Belgium. Although there was an eyewitness who could accurately describe them, the affair was unfortunately dismissed. Almost two months later, two new incidents were reported in just one evening. On May 10, 1982, at around 10 p.m. in the upscale neighborhood of Exilis, two armed men in their 40s walked along Avenue de Tali. One of them was tall with a black mustache, glasses, and a hood. The other was shorter, with very wavy, salty, and peppery hair. They ran their hands along with every car handle in hopes of finding one that was unlocked but was unsuccessful. Weary, the thieves entered the parking lot for a Building 32, where a driver was preparing to park his car, and asked an Allegro. The young man felt a revolver pointed at the back of his neck. He heard a voice order him, Put your hands on your head and don't move. 
Otherwise, you know what will happen. Frightened, the car driver did as instructed. However, despite the fear, he was still able to notice a few important details about the thief. He spoke French fluently without an accent. The carjackers took off in the metallic gray car and headed towards Watermail Boitsfort. But they soon found out that this old jalopy was in a bad condition and its gas tank was almost empty. They needed another car that was faster and more dependable. And so, that very same evening, they stopped just outside the city of Hall and the province of brabant Flamand, where they spotted a Volkswagen dealership and decided to get themselves a new car. Although the owners of the Birchow garage were sleeping upstairs, they did not hear the robbers breaking in. The crooks forced open the lock and seized the heavy-duty car, a blue Santana whose ignition keys had been left on the dashboard. In front of the garage, the two thieves abandoned the Austin Allegro that they had stolen earlier and took off on their new ride. For their second job, the bandits targeted a grocery store in Mabouge, North France. In the early hours of August 14, 1982, the streets and alleys seemed deserted. Three men arrived at United Nations Square in the Santana. Two of them got out of the car and headed to a grocery store and shattered the unprotected metal section of the storefront's double glass doors. At 3.50 a.m., someone called emergency assistance line 17 to alert the authorities that a robbery was in progress. After being redirected to the Mabouche police station, the unidentified caller told the receptionist on duty that something unusual is going on right near where I live, just at the edge of United Nations Square. It seems like the thieves are trying to break into the peered grocery store. The caller hung up immediately. Consequently, the three law enforcement officers went to the location. Two of the two peacekeepers went through Lafayette Square, while the other took Albert First Street. Suddenly, Agent Christian Delacourt found himself face to face with one of the criminals. The man had a heavy build, and his face was hidden by a ski mask, and he was armed. Without hesitating, he drew on Delacourt. The 36-year-old police officer tried to protect himself from the gunfire, but was shot in the stomach. Before losing consciousness, he heard three other gunshots fire in his partner's direction. He shouted, Look out! Thanks to his warning, his colleagues managed to narrowly escape by sliding into the sidewalk. The thieves sped off in the Santana driven by their accomplice. Hoping to shoot the driver, the third officer opened fire on the escaping car. But the police officer's gun jammed and the thieves disappeared. The wounded officer was rescued. The border police were alerted and were given all the pertinent details. However, the vehicle was not found on any of the major routes, which suggested that the Belgian crooks knew how to cross the border without being noticed. What was the real motive of these petty thieves and, most importantly, who were they? These questions and many others would remain unanswered for a long time. The thieves were a gang of at least three people, including a very tall man, a hardened killer, and an old man behind the wheel. Apart from that, there was no clues, no trails, no suspects to pursue for the moment. It was a market day in the province of Brabant, Flamand, when the three burglars decided to strike again. On Thursday, September 30, 1982, in the busy downtown area, in the narrow streets of Bruxelles at around 10.30, the owner of the gun shop, Daniel Decase, a slender man with a thin mustache who wore lightly tinted glasses, was speaking with his customers. No one paid any attention to the blue Santana that had just slammed on its brakes in front of the store. Out of nowhere, the 27-year-old gunsmith noticed someone with their face half-covered running towards him, followed by another taller man who took out a hunting rifle from his trench coat. The first burglar bandaged his gun, moved towards Daniel, and commanded, Nobody move! 
Taken by surprise, the gunsmith remained motionless. He was still struck violently on the head. The tall tug took care of the two customers. Once the hostages were under control, the two men started to choose from among the items on display, completely neglecting the money. They were more interested in the guns and took their time to select their pick. They took 15 guns on display, including two 357 Magnum caliber Ruger pistols, three 45 Colt caliber guns, two 9mm Smith & Wesson revolvers, an FN-22 caliber pistol, a Beretta submachine gun, a 9x19 Ingram caliber, a second 38 Ingram caliber, a 7.65mm Bernadelli, and one 44 Magnum caliber Ruger. Hurriedly, the stout thief slipped everything into a travel bag and a plastic one. In the meantime, two passerbys who had taken refuge in a garage at the time of the attack rushed to a police officer not far from the causeway. Out of breath, they explained everything to the officer. In the store, three people were being held hostage and the thieves were armed and very dangerous. Undaunted Claude Hallott, who had just returned from medical leave due to gunshot wound, decided to intervene before the arrival of reinforcement. Since he was an excellent shot, the brave local police officer of 33 years headed towards the location to neutralize the perpetrators. While the giant was collecting the stolen guns, the second crook and the more aggressive and more powerful one said to his colleague, Come on, let's get out of here. We have what we were looking for. As they were leaving, the stocky thief noticed the presence of a police uniform. He signaled to the giant to stand back. Behind the half-open door, he shouted to the driver, Let's go! Immediately, the Santana Volkswagen pulled up from behind the wheel and the third accomplice opened fire on Agent Cloud, killing him instantly. Now that he had killed a police officer, the authorities would undoubtedly want to retaliate. They fled for the capital as fast as they could. As they were leaving, the officers who had come to assist Claude arrived at Rue de Broxel and recognized the blue Santana in the distance as it sped away. All available cars drove after it in pursuit. Some headed down Rue Namur, while others took National 4 towards Bruxelles. Immediately an alert was issued to all law enforcement units in the area were called in for backup. In a car chase straight out of a Hollywood movie, the fugitives drove at full speed until a police car caught up with them and tried to block their way. Toward, the outlaws opened fire on the two uniformed men with savage fury. Under a crackling hail of gunfire, Deputy Chief Roland Campine and the First Marshal Bernard Sartlet both 42 years old, were seriously wounded and forced to abandon the chase. The killers were able to escape. Peacefully, they slipped into the capital, drove to a garage, and then filed off the chassis number of the car, then doused it in gasoline. This was undoubtedly the work of a very well-organized gang that was familiar with law enforcement investigation procedures. When the burned car was found out at around 11.30 p.m., the authorities had lost all hope of finding a clue a partial fingerprint or any other detail that could initiate an investigation. None of that would be possible due to the vehicle's condition. Except for a precision scale used to weigh drugs, nothing inclusive could be found in the burned passenger compartment. On the other hand, the casualties from the shooting were heavy. One local police officer had been killed, others were hanging between life and death, and others had just been released from the hospital after being in a coma for four days. Despite the authorities' efforts, the investigation was not fruitful and the only information available was the incoherent statement from the eyewitnesses. Using the descriptions provided, composite sketches were drawn. In any case, there were still no avenues to pursue at the time. Up until then, the Belgian authorities had not made the connection between the different incidents. 
They continue to gather information from unsolved cases in different towns but fail to notice that the attacks were closely connected. In the 1980s, before the advent of digital networks, there was a lack if not an absolute absence of communication between government departments because of which the outlaws were able to run rampant throughout the area. Drunk from their continued success, they kept going, constantly improving and perfecting their strategy. Now, felt all-powerful, invincible, and ready to do anything to achieve their goals. Inevitably, the gang's cruelty and violence grew with their victories. Now, they were armed to the teeth and prepared to commit acts that were increasingly atrocious. A few months later, a few kilometers from the capital, the gang struck at Chateau de Bercelles, located in a remote area, and claimed an unfortunate victim. Two days before Christmas in 1982, Jose Vanden End, an elderly man of 70 who worked as the caretaker at La Burge du Chevalier, was found dead with his arms tied to the bedpost. Apparently, he had been bound, tortured extensively, and then executed with six shots in the head from a long 22 caliber rifle. It was an excruciating sight for the victim's son, Mark, who was 38. He worked as a cook for the hotel and who had discovered his father's body. The relentless brutality used to kill the old man had never been seen before. What was even more astounding was that the murderers took time to eat a pie, enjoy a leg of deer, and drink several magnums of champagne right then and there, not to mention the 15 or more Royal Schwab plates they had stole. On January 12, 1983, the gang claimed another victim in Mons, in the province of Hainaut, not far from Rue de Lucier, an abandoned taxi was found on Rue du Prince about the office of the French consulate. In the trunk, the police discovered the body, covered in dried blood, and of the driver Constantine Angelo. Viciously murdered, he had taken 422 caliber shots to the head just like the previous victim. This had become a genuine massacre. Yet the murderous insanity of these criminals had not made it to the newspapers. At least not yet. As for the thugs, another spectacle was underway, and a new protagonist would soon enter the scene. The next attack scheduled was perfectly planned with a conventional and effective strategy. But for that, they required transportation that would be quick and functional. Consequently, on the evening of January 28, at around 9 p.m., two members of the gang, armed with Kalashnikovs, forced Raymond Devi, an employee of the Ministry of French Culture, to give him his identification. His driver's license and his car, a Pico 504 with the license plate T705F. On February 11, 1983, it was almost 7 p.m. when three people, their faces hidden behind carnival masks, burst into the Delhi supermarket in general in the province of Brabant, Boulogne. Everything happened quickly. The thieves started firing shots into the supermarket ceiling, then the cash registers. Then one of the crooks pointed his gun at the manager and forced her to take her to the room with the safe. Joined by a second thief, he followed the employees to the back room. Once the safe had been opened, the crook shouted at her, Get down on the ground! Right now! Terrified, the poor woman quickly stretched out and hid her tear-filled face. Quickly, the second accomplice collected the money in a plastic bag, while the third threatened the other customers and employees in the store. They took all the money that was immediately available, which was about 692,384 Belgian francs, or the equivalent of about 17,164 euros. Before fleeing, they took one final precaution. They got all the phone lines so that no one had the chance to alert law enforcement. The three hoodlums climbed into the stolen Pugo 504, where a fourth accomplice was waiting for them. When they were getting ready to head off in the direction of La Hope, a brave motorist tried to block their path by sandwiching his car in front of theirs. 
Without even hesitating, one of the gangsters opened fire on the motorist. Instinctively, he lowered his head on the dashboard and laid down on the steering wheel of his Audi 100. As a result, he narrowly missed a bullet that shattered the windows and went right through the passenger compartment. Thanks to his agility, he was able to escape certain death. Nevertheless, his bold intervention would have consequences. For the moment, the four burglars were forced to disappear into thin air, but not for very long. Three days after the victimless holdup at the Del High supermarket in Genville, the gang re-emerged in Plants Noet, which was also in Brabant, Vallon. It was the evening of Valentine's Day. After a long day at work, Mrs. Genevieve Van Litte de Jugen, manager of Borio Print Shop in Exlis, was peacefully heading home when she noticed a dark-tinted car following her, but she lost sight of it. When she arrived at her home on Avenue de Versailles, she parked her new golf, which she had picked up that very day at VHE, a garage where the hardened killers had obviously been lurking. Undoubtedly, the car model that Genevieve had purchased was one that the gangsters wanted for themselves. Hastily, a man wearing a black hood got out of the car and pointed his gun at the woman's stomach and threatened her, saying, Don't move if you know what's good for you and leave your keys on the dashboard. Fearing for her life, she did as instructed, set the keys down and got out of the car with her hands on her head. She noticed that her attacker spoke impeccable French. Beneath his ski mask, which showed a part of his face and his hair, he looked like the Mediterranean between 20 and 30 years old with rather thick, curly-colored, short hair. Immediately, the armed thief got behind the wheel of the golf and sped off, followed by his accomplice driving the Pugo 504. It was no accident that these habitual criminals were lurking around the VAG dealership on Bruxelles Causeway in Waterloo, where Mrs. Van Lidet purchased her car. That was where the motorist who dared to try to block the path following the holdup at Del Hayes in Geneva had left his white Audi since February 14 for a checkup and the interim repairs following the two gunshots that caused it considerable damage. The arrogant fool had struck his nose where it didn't belong. For that reason, he had to be taught a lesson that he would soon not forget. Determined to get their revenge, the intrepid criminals headed to the garage in the early hours of the morning on February 22, 1983. They went to the rear of the building, broke a window, and entered. There, they found the car that they were looking for. By the stroke of luck, the keys were on the dashboard. However, their intrusion set off an alarm. There was no time for them to linger. But before they could steal the car that had hindered their escape, they had to move another car that was in their way, which they did. In a flash, they fled aboard the white Audi, leaving behind a clearer message for the authorities. Anyone foolish enough to get in the way of their plans would immediately or eventually suffer consequences. As they continued to enjoy their criminal exploits, the members of the mysterious and unstoppable gang had no intentions of slowing down. This wasn't their first time and they planned to increase their efforts and to strike even harder. They were determined, callous and out of control. These criminals enjoyed spreading fear on a massive scale. True to their nature, and for the second time, Delhaye's group was attacked. This time, the large store in Fort Jacka was their target. On February 25, 1983, at around 7.30 p.m. on the Waterloo Causeway in Uncle, two unknown persons with masked face got out of a golf driven by one of their sidekicks. Immediately, the pair burst into the supermarket then split up according to their established plan. Armed with two high-caliber weapons, the tall, swarthy men threatened the staff and the customers as they kept an eye on the store's entrance. After firing a couple of shots into the ceiling, he yelled out in a terrifying voice, If you want to stay alive, you better do as we say, and anyone who doesn't do as instructed will be immediately eliminated. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Carrying a long nightstick, his accomplice, a much shorter man, headed to the manager's office, dragging one of the cashiers by her shoulder. Once they had reached the safe, he shoved the terror-stricken cashier and screamed in her face. Open the safe now! Seeing that the bandits were losing patience, a member of the staff hurriedly admitted that, I'm the one who has the keys. When the safe was finally opened, the second thief quickly emptied it. He took almost 600,000 Belgian francs, which was the equivalent of 14,874 euros, and put it into a plastic bag. Outside, an elderly man named Ellie Collette was pushing a shopping cart in the parking lot and was approaching the store's entrance just when the two criminals were leaving. Instinctively, he realized that these were burglars. Without a moment's thought, he rushed to the service station adjacent to the Del Hayes to call for help, but the thief had already spotted him and chased him in order to keep him from talking. Horrified, the old man shouted, Help! Help! Sir, stop right now! The bandit retorted, You don't seem to be listening! The old man approached the garage next door. The burglar quickly fired twice with perfect precision. The first bullet was fired at the gas station attendant on duty in order to distract him. The well-aimed shot ricocheted and got lodged into the wall. The second shot struck Mr. Collette directly in his knees. Fed up, the two gangsters immediately climbed into the vehicle waiting for them and they took off for Waterloo. On March 3rd, four of them attacked the Halcal Rid and Brabant Flamanda. They used the same strategy, the same car and the same members of the group were involved, but this time they struck with increased brutality. At 7.30 p.m., the golf came to a stop in the parking lot and three men stepped out. As soon as they entered the store, they split up. One of them, armed with a shot barrel shotgun, stood at the entrance to keep the hostages under control while a second stationed himself at the back of the store close to the emergency exit, with a revolver in his hand ready to fire if anything went wrong. After firing a few stray bullets, the leader of the gang who had masterminded the operation said, I want everyone to get down on the ground and put their hands behind their back. Quick, quick, quick! Without wasting any time, a third member of the group went upstairs to the office of the manager, Mr. Walter Verstappen, where he was speaking with two of his employees. As soon as they entered the office, the sadistic tug struck the floor manager Jules Knockhart violently on his head with his nightstick and ordered the two underlings to get down on the ground. Addressing the manager, he ordered him, Show me your hands, Mr. Manager. Very good. Now get up and walk slowly. You're going to take me to the store safe and open it for me and don't waste my time. It's a mistake to do this, replied the manager. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. Mind your own business. Nobody asked you for any opinion. Just do as you're told. Hurry up, yelled the angry tug. Right away, Mr. Verstappen 
was forcefully taken to the safe, but the burglar stored 1,182,115 Belgian francs or 29,304 euros. Then they shot the manager in the back of the head at close range. Now it had become increasingly clear to the Belgian authorities that these were the same thugs who had burglarized the supermarkets in Brabant area. Furthermore, the similarities between the physical description of the bandits from Delhaize and those from Kulruit were striking. Each attack always included three people, including an old man with gray hair, who was usually behind the wheel, a giant with a thick mustache and squared glasses, and a merciless killer with frizzy hair. Apparently, it was the latter who was the leader. The way that he gave orders, held his gun, fired instinctively, and moved around in order to keep constant control of the place suggested that he was highly trained, perhaps a former enlisted man or maybe even a soldier who was still in service. What was even more chilling and added to the law enforcement's sense of helplessness was that there was no way of predicting the location or detecting their next attack. Despite the efforts of the police, the substantial reward offered by Delhaye's group and the 5 million francs offered by Colruid, the endless investigation failed to make progress. Eventually, reports from ballistic experts helped draw connections between the various incidents involving this terrifying gang. Following an analysis of recovered munitions, found at the various crime scenes, it was determined that the guns used were identical to those stolen from Decazi Armory in Weber. Nothing could affirm the identity of the elusive criminals with certainty. Countless suspects were interrogated, but there was never enough evidence to charge them. Just like ghosts, these terrifying and cruelly dangerous men slipped through the cracks and reappeared whenever and wherever they wanted. The only concrete information that the investigators had is what the crooks wanted to leave behind, like the fact that they armed themselves with the same kind of handgun for various deadly calibers. Also, they used high-speed stolen cars like the Santana used in the Weber holdup in September 1982 and the Pugo pinched in Watermail Boitsfort in January 1983 and the Golf stolen in Plants Noyed in February 14, 1983. The automobiles were always new, dark-colored and had the ignition keys on the dashboard. Similarly, on the night of June 78, 1983, a sub was stolen from the showroom of the Michael Jadot garage at 178 Afian Causeway. After a cooling-off period of a few months, the vicious criminals reappeared like a jack-in-the-box. Now that they had means of transport, guns and money, the most formidable criminals in Belgian planet seized more cure if required for their murderous exploits. They were aware that law enforcement was on their trail. Consequently, in September 10, 1983, they decided to get themselves some body armor, but not just any kind. They opted for the best and the most sophisticated in the country. Bulletproof vests made up of 14 superimposed layers of composite material known as Kevlar. This groundbreaking model was so lightweight that the engineers from the textile corporation that designed it also called it a dress in suspenders. These rarities were exclusively manufactured at the Vitok van Landersham factory located near Tommy Cemetery in the province of East Flanders. It was a night from hell in this Belgian community. At 2.30 in the morning, inhabitants of the area were rudely awakened. The sound of gunshot could be heard everywhere. Slowly, the lights flickered in every house. There is widespread panic in a usually peaceful and calm neighborhood. On a stakeout, masked and armed men prepared to go after the neighbors who hid behind the shades in order to see what was going on. In a fit of anger, one of the thieves cried out, What are you looking at? Get the hell out! Without hesitation, the three thugs began shooting at anything that moved. As soon as they noticed that someone was watching them, they simply aimed and fired. Blasts of lead flew in every direction, and the residents were terror-stricken. Right away, they notified the police, who arrived as fast as they could at the site, but it was already too late. 
the burglars killed two innocent and made off with seven prototypes of a bulletproof vest that the Widokwan Landigam Corporation had just finished developing. Their attack arsenal and defense were now complete. At that point, it was evident that even deadlier and more frequent robberies were about to happen. To add insult to the injury, the criminal's tyranny knew no bounds. The investigators still hadn't made any progress. It was not very long before the burglars re-emerged in the sub that they had stolen. It was Saturday, September 17, 1983, in Nivelles. Close to the supermarket near the Bruxelles Causeway, a white Mercedes stopped in front of the gas station shortly after midnight. Behind the wheel, businessman Jacques Fourez was traveling from Paris to Occle with his companion, Elise DeWitt a former secretary for a lawyer in Bruxelles. Running out of gas, Mr. Forez exited the highway to fill up at the pump in the parking lot. Before opening his tank, he stepped away from his car to answer nature's call. Alerted by the deafening sound from the back of the store, he noticed two hooded suspects about to tear down a door with the blowtorch. Instantly, the businessman tried to walk back to his car, but it was too late. He had unfortunately been spotted. One of the burglars went after him, shouting, Hey, you! Over there! Stop! Don't move or I'll shoot! Frightened, he began to walk more quickly, then the merciless killer shot him with two bullets to his head. In the white Mercedes, Mrs. DeWitt saw everything. She got out of the car and ran towards her fallen partner. The burglar grabbed the poor woman and killed her at close range with two bullets, one in the cheek and the other in the right eye. After having eliminated the witness and hidden their bodies under their cars, the gang went back to work. It was about 1.25 a.m. when the Colruyt alarm and Vels alerted the parent company's surveillance center in Hal. Immediately, the city's police were alerted and they arrived less than five minutes later. Marcel Moore and Jean-Marie Lacroix were greeted by gunfire. Under a hail of lead, officers Lacroix slipped into the police van and fired back despite the wound to his left hand. Before collapsing, his colleague, who had been shot twice in the ankle, once in the throat, pleaded with him in agony. Hurry, call for backup! He had barely finished speaking when one of the hardened criminals came and finished him off. At close range, he fired three shots from his shotgun. By his side, Marshal LaCroix played dead. That instinct saved his life. Believing that he had eliminated the officers, the thug grabbed their walkie-talkies and also stole the Mercedes of the slain couple. Finally, after the insane killers had skipped town, officers LaCroix sent out a radio alert. The message was short and to the point. He said in a defeated voice, Marcel has been killed. Quick, send backup. At around 1.40, a first aid team was immediately dispatched. LaCroix was immediately taken to the hospital and the carnage had left three people dead. And for what? A poultry hole including five boxes of pear lines, five cans of 5-liter peanut oil, five cans of 5-liter corn oil, 10 2.5 kg bags, and 40 packets of 500 grams of coffee. Paradoxically, these insane hoodlooms showed no interest in either the money in the businessman's wallet or in the string of pearls that Mrs. DeWitt was wearing or even the three diamond-set gold rings. These ongoing inconsistencies in their behavior greatly intrigued everyone in the Belgian legal system. On that same night, just after 2 a.m., three police officers who were responding to an alert issued throughout the province of Brabant Vallon spotted an avenue lard two high-speeding vehicles, namely a white Mercedes and a midnight blue Saab. As they sped off National 5, the patrol agents took off in pursuit. A few hundred meters before them, a police car turned on its siren. Trapped, the fugitives were back on both sides of the street, right next to a bar called. As soon as they arrived, shots rang from both sides. In the gun fired the Gulf's driver, 
Agent Ruiz was wounded from a bullet to the head. In spite of his injuries, Ruiz maintained control of the vehicle and was able to barrel through the roadblocks set up by the killers and continued on his way to the Cosmos Crossroad. His two colleagues dove to the bottom of the car to escape the bullets and owed their lives to the driver. At the back, the Mercedes that was used by the gang from the Vels was abandoned with all the stolen merchandise in its trunk. The second car, the Saab Turbo, was only found a few hours later. In this sinister saga full of twists and turns and murders, the media at the time began to refer to the existence of a gang of dangerous criminals who killed at random. From then on, because of their behavior and their cold determination, they were given the nickname the Mad Killers of Brabant. Never before seen in the annals of crime, these ruthless criminals who appeared from nowhere eliminated witnesses whether they were civilians or police and spread death only for small amounts of stolen goods. As a result, the press started to question the actions of the authorities since they had made little progress following the bloody attack at the Decasey Armory in Vera in September 1982. Belgian law enforcement admitted that they were faced with the most complex criminal case ever. Once again, the sadistic thugs attacked innocent people with complete impunity just two weeks after the attack on in Nivelles, while government institutions and Belgian authorities remained helpless. This time, they were looking for cars with the same features as the one that had been damaged. It was the night of October 1, 1983, at around 1 a.m. It was closing time for the Three Docks, a lodge nestled at the hollow of a valley just outside of Ohane. Before leaving the bus, Jacques Camps bid goodnight to his staff and headed to the parking lot where he had parked his daughter's golf GTI. Hidden behind a restaurant wall, two armed men wearing character masks were waiting for the right time to strike. Brutally, one of them surprised Van Camp from behind and kept him under control while a second person entered the establishment. Once inside, the thug gathered together the seven people in the kitchen. Shouting, he firmly ordered them, Right now, everyone down on the ground! Is this a joke? retorted one of the cooks, who thought this was a prank. The costumes are great, but it's not Halloween yet. He fired two shots into the fridge to convince the cook to comply, and then everyone found themselves in the ground. The hoodlum never asked to open the cash register. However, he did force one of the waiters to give him the keys to his Alfa Romeo parked in front of the lodge, and he left immediately thereafter. For a brief moment, a dreadful silence set in before the crackling sound of two gunshots. The barbaric thieves had killed the restaurant owner. Five days later, they struck again at Biercel, where the caretaker of the Chevalier Inn had been tortured ten months earlier. However, this time the Del Hay supermarket would instead be robbed. On October 7, 1983, Three men hid under lifelike carnival masks and hoods burst out of the Golf GTI. As they entered the store, one of the masked burglars pointed the barrel of his gun at Daniel Haislier, a medical student paying for his education by working in the big city. Roughly, he pushed his way inside, forcing him to get on his knees and then onto the ground. The first shot fired wounded a 20-year-old cashier and directly in the shoulder. The two cashiers as well as the 58-year-old customer had also each been struck by a bullet. That was when the manager of the shopping center appeared. Freddy stepped out of his manager's office and noticed the student held at bay by a gun pointed at the back of his neck. Distraught, he spoke out of the tug, saying, It won't do any good to kill these poor people or to take any hostages. Just take what you want and leave us alone. The criminals did not appreciate this intervention. Without replying, one of the criminals decided to take him out in cold blood. Immediately after that, his compatriot ordered a cashier to hurry up to empty the contents of the cash drawers in a plastic bag. The value of their hole was estimated to be about 1 million francs. 
As for the authorities, their investigation was still a standstill and would remain that way for a long time to come. In the meantime, the killers claimed more victims. On December 1, 1983, they committed a double homicide at Anderlis. During the fatal robbery, three imposters with covered faces broke into a jewelry shop owned by a Polish couple. In the living room, they first killed the wife, Maria Slomka, 38, with several shots to the legs and the chest. In his workshop, the 43-year-old jeweler, Jean, had clearly heard gunshots. He immediately grabbed his 38 calibers and rushed to the living room and caught his wife's killer next to her lifeless body. In the next room, his accomplice cried out, Shoot! Just shoot! In a split second, the murderer reacted and the jeweler was taken down in front of his two terrified daughters, Sylvie and Karen, who clung to each other at the top of the stairs, aged 16 and 12 respectively. The poor young girls had been witness to the atrocious murder of their parents. In this jewelry store, except with two brooches, they only swiped a few alarm clocks and some custom jewelry without any real value. It was as if their only motive was to spill blood and to spread fear wherever they went. However, for not apparent reasons, the mad killers of Brabant disappeared for a short time. In the public's mind, and in that of most investigators, the 22 months that passed without any killing seemed to indicate that the gang was gone for good. But the thugs were still making plans, still improving their strategies and refining their skills. They learned from their mistakes and adjusted their plans with unparalleled flexibility. After a hiatus of over 21 months, on September 17, 1985, at about 4 a.m. in a small masterpiece of commando operation, the gang outwitted all the safety measures of the Volkswagen depots and cut through part of the fence in order to quickly disappear behind the wheel of a three-door anthracite-tinted Golf GTI. On September 27, 1985, no one in Belgium suspected that the killers from Burbank, who had already murdered 12 between 1982 and 1983, were staging their comeback. Just after 8 p.m., the Golf slammed on the brakes in Del Hay's parking lot, Three men got out, including a very large stout man carrying riot guns, wearing long coats and carnival masks. They fired at anything that moved, took a child hostage, and emptied the cash registers. Three customers had lost their lives. Twenty minutes after the attack at the dealership, the same criminals robbed the Del Hayes, killed five innocents, including one child, and netted 3,514,495 Belgian francs, which was the equivalent of 87,122 euros. About 12 days later, the gang re-emerged on the Del Hayes parking lot in Alast. On that day, the mad killer spree came to an end, leaving nine unfortunate victims. This horrific massacre would bring an end to their series of murderous holdups and their second wave of attacks. In the Parkland store, customers were filling their shopping carts for St. Martin long weekend. At the front of the store, a witness saw four men approaching. Three of them wore masks and carried guns. The fourth man seemed to be the one who gave the orders. They fired at the billboards as well as the cars in the parking lot, regardless of whether they were occupied or empty. Inside the supermarket, everyone panicked and ran in all directions. Someone could be heard screaming, Hold up! It's a hold up! A few cashiers and customers were able to sneak out and flee the nightmarish scene, while others hid at the back of the store or behind shelves. The three burglars shot at anyone who was trying to escape. They took a hostage and barged into the office with the safe, which was emptied immediately. They stole about 737,777 Belgian francs, which was about 18,329 euros. As they left the shopping center, the thieves did not miss the opportunity to kill a few more people before disappearing. A child tried to block their way at the exit, however a bullet to the leg was enough to stop him, but the woman who tried to move was callously shot. 
and the police spotlight the most formidable killers during the years of lead managed to easily escape once more. After they left, some people cried while women and children screamed. Fourteen people bathed in their own blood and eight others would never get up again. What could have been the explanation for such an hatred? Was it sure banditry? A shakedown of big box stores? Focused on a high body count? Or was it a conspiracy aimed at destabilizing the government? Today, after close to 40 years after committing their first murder, the Brabant killers, who were responsible for the deaths of 28 people between 1982 and 1985, remain the subject of an ongoing investigation. Hundreds of people were subjected, but none of them had ever been charged in the most mysterious case in the history of the country. Over time, there had been several twists and turns, but unfortunately, none of them led to anything conclusive. We're at the end of our show for today so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.